Please note that this conversation took place in early 2022. There may be references to events, status of a film, or to someone's position at an organization that was true at the time. This in no way diminishes the value or relevance of this podcast. Enjoy. He goes, when we finish animating this, everyone will pray to be autistic. <laughs> I thought, wow, that's amazing. Just that idea that Owen is gifted and that people with autism, it's a gift to the world and they have so much to offer the world. And that way of, is the way I approach the movie. Welcome to the Art of Documentary Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Lebrecht. I have the privilege and honor of talking with acclaimed filmmaker Roger Ross Williams today. Notable titles are the 2010 Oscar-winning short documentary Music by Prudence, 2013's God Loves Uganda, 2016's Emmy Award-winning Life Animated, and 2019's documentary The Apollo. Roger is also on the Board of Governors of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, representing the documentary branch. Uh, I could go on and on, uh, but I want to get into my talk with Roger. So, welcome, Roger. Hi, Jim. Great to be here. I always like to start just kind of asking people kind of about themselves and, you know, where did you grow up and what was it like? I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania called Easton, Pennsylvania pretty industrial town, steel town, really, uh, right next to Bethlehem Steel. Pretty working class. Um, my mother actually was a maid who um, worked for the local college, and my father worked as a janitor and then a gas station. The college where my mother worked was just Lafayette College. They, a few years ago, gave me an honorary doctorate degree, and I bought my mother with me, and I said, my mother used to clean your toilets. It was an incredibly emotional thing to go back to my hometown, get an honorary doctorate, and bring my mother, who was their maid. Wow. <laughs> I can't imagine what was going through your mother's mind and heart. She was very emotional. I was very emotional. My mother was someone who worked very hard. Besides being a maid, she had three other jobs to provide for me. So I could be the first in my family to go to college go to university, and um, I went to NYU, and that was also a proud moment for her, so. Do you have brothers and sisters? I have a half-brother and a half-sister. They're much older, so they weren't around. So it was kind of just me and my mom. What led you to be a documentary filmmaker? Like, how did you get started? Well, I went to NYU. I studied journalism. I became a journalist, worked for all the major networks, was very frustrated with uh, working for mainstream media, couldn't really do what I wanted to do, couldn't really tell stories in the way that I wanted to tell stories, was censored by the networks a lot. I got a job working for the Sundance Channel, covering the Sundance Film Festival, doing a daily show called Sundance Dailies. My job was to interview all of the filmmakers in competition. I remember sitting there and I was like, I want to do what they're doing. Someday, I'm going to have a film at Sundance. When I had my first film at Sundance, which was God Loves Uganda, I told that story when I introduced the film. I was like, you know, my dreams do come true. With my first film, Music by Prudence, I was working for CNN at the time, pretty frustrated. And I just quit my job and I went to Africa for the first time. 
Music by Prudence is about Prudence Mabena, born with autogryphosis, which means her limbs are fused together and they had to amputate her legs at birth. She has this incredible singing voice and incredible music talent. And I had heard about her and wrote to her. I remember the the school where she goes to, which is called King George VI. It's a school for children with disabilities. And she sent me a little mini DV tape. And I remember I hooked up my camera to the television and I played it. And I, some reason I burst into tears. I was like, this is it. This is my destiny. I'd never been to Africa. Prudence is from Zimbabwe and lived in Zimbabwe. And I just quit my job and hopped on a plane and went to Zimbabwe with very little money and resources. When I met Prudence, I again burst into tears and I said, our fates are forever intertwined and your story is the most important story of my life. And uh, yeah, the rest is history. We went on to... I say the three O's. Oscar, she performed for Obama, and Oprah. Wow. (laughs) That's where I got the bug to make documentaries because I was so moved by the story and the power of story to transform the way you see the world. It transformed the way I saw people living with disabilities and and this school, which was the most extraordinary place I had ever been. What was extraordinary about it? The kids there are abandoned because their families believe that having a disability is a curse, it's a curse upon the family and it's a witchcraft. All of them had been abandoned by their families. A lot of them were living with very (laughs) severe, severe disabilities. And it was a school about ability. They all chipped in, and resources were tough there because it's Zimbabwe had the highest inflation in the world. It was a, under a brutal dictator. And no matter what you could contribute, you, you just would help cook a meal. And they were the most resourceful, and it was just the most amazing environment because they were just like kids that were, wanted everything any other kid wants, like dating and having fun and... I lived there for many months, and I got so into their world. Like, I became part of their world that I was wheeling around in a wheelchair, and and all my sort of prejudice that that they were somehow different than me went away, and they were just kids. And so the movie that I made changed. It became a movie about just young people living their lives. And, of course, it's inspiring because they overcame so much to be where they were, and the band that Prudence formed, they were all just incredibly talented musicians, and they didn't let their disabilities stop that. There's one scene in the movie, which is my favorite, which is where these sort of American evangelicals would come, and they would pray over the kids at the school and try to heal them. And they would say, you're going to get up from that wheelchair and walk. And the kids... um, Prudence and the kids would make fun of them after they leave. They would be like, get up, Mark. There's a scene in Music by Prudence where she's like, get up and walk. Oh, oh, please. It was, it was, it's the most, it's the most amazing. And it said it everything. Um, You know, (laughs) (laughs) it said so much about colonialism, about people's, you know, sort of inability to understand that we're all part of the human experience. They didn't need to be healed or cured. I, I love this because uh, 
everything you're saying is so familiar to me. And this kind of sense of community or like how we react to people who think they're trying to do something good for us, it isn't just like an American attitude. It's international. Yeah. Prudence went on to become a spokesperson on disabilities for um, UNICEF. And she went on to really change the way Zimbabweans saw people with disabilities. And after she came back from the Oscars where Oprah bowed down before her wheelchair on the red carpet, and that picture became viral on Africa. It was from, from Nigeria to South Africa. And when Prudence got off the plane, there was a parade through Harare, the capital of Zimbabwe. They put her in a Rolls Royce convertible and they rode her through the streets and everyone's cheering and there's a parade. And, but at the foot of the steps of the plane when she got off was her father who had abandoned her on his knees for a man to be on his knees begging for her forgiveness. And she addressed both political parties in Zimbabwe. And there was a big editorial in the national newspaper, which was saying that Zimbabweans have to change the way they look at people with disabilities. It was just an amazing, extraordinary thing to witness. Wow, documentaries really can change the world, you know? So many of us that make documentaries, we want to shed light on something. We believe that if people witness our films, that it will create positive change, understanding. And so to be able to have that be the result that you know, you must have been floating on air for years. Yeah. What we were able to do was create an outreach campaign around the disabilities in Africa and partner with many different organizations to really use the film as an educational tool. You previously said that your films are inspired by your own experience of being an outsider, Black, gay, dyslexic. Can you speak about how growing up with this intersection of identities influenced your career and the sorts of projects that you pursue? I mean, you know, I always felt like an outsider. Growing up, first of all, in a poor Black community, but even feeling ostracized from that community because I'm gay, and my mother and everyone around me was very active in the church. And I grew up singing in the gospel choir of the church. And, you know, I had to hide who I was. I couldn't be who I was. So I spent a lot of time alone in my room, really creating my own sort of fantasy worlds. And just couldn't really connect with anyone around me. I couldn't connect with the people at church because they said I was evil. There was a lot of racial issues in the town. We were totally segregated. The south side of town was the black side of town. And being severely dyslexic and in special classes, you know, I just felt like just such so alone. For me, it's about telling these really inspirational stories of outsiders, you know, overcoming everything thrown at them. And also that they create and find their own place in the world. Is there someone or something that's been kind of an influence for you, like inspiration, a specific film that kind of informed you to think differently about your filmmaking? Yes, it was Marlon Riggs' Tongues Untied. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing that on PBS, and I was like, what? How did this get onto PBS? You know, I was like, <laughs> because I hadn't seen my self. I hadn't seen the story, the images of Black gay men in 
cinema before. And that documentary had such a profound effect on me. It's what really made me think that, okay, my story matters. And the stories I want to tell matters. Because I didn't think that when I was alone in my room. Yeah, I was on a panel in Ireland a few months ago, a disability group. They wanted to interview me and such. And there was a woman there that basically said, if you can see it, you can be it. And I think that when we don't see people like ourselves on television or in film or even, I would extend it out to like, you know, I would love to have a doctor who has a disability. Yeah. You know? Yes. Because I know that there's a lot of crap I don't have to go through. Yes. So, hey, why don't we talk about Life Animated a little bit, all right? Sure. I, I'm always loath to kind of tell people who are listening on the podcast, well, this film is about blah, blah, blah. But <laughs> I want you to kind of explain it. You know, this is a story about this gentleman, Owen Suskind, and his family. Yeah. And Owen is autistic. At around three and a half, Owen developed autism. Before that, he was talking, communicating with his parents, and then he disappeared. He, was, he wasn't able to communicate with his family. One day, his father realized that he could actually communicate with Owen because Owen had been watching endless Disney animated films, and he had learned a language, a way to communicate through these Disney animated films. And his father grabbed the Yago puppet and started speaking to Owen, and Owen spoke back to him for the first time. And they all became Disney characters and communicated with Owen through Disney animated films. The amazing thing about it is that these Disney films are classic mythological tales. And Owen, in watching these films over and over and over, became sort of a wise expert on life. And, you know, when I first sort of started Life Animated, again, entering it with my own sort of preconceived prejudices, and then I realized that we had so much to learn from Owen and that being autistic wasn't a disability at all. And I, I started to think that maybe we were the ones who had the disability and Owen was the one who, you know, really had a true understanding of the world. In the film, Owen creates a world of sidekicks because he doesn't identify with the heroes in Disney films. He identifies with the sidekicks. And he creates a world called the Land of the Lost Sidekicks, where the sidekicks sort of band together and they find their inner hero and conquer these sort of monsters that are the challenges that Owen faces in his life. What we did was we took Owen's drawings because he he starts to draw these Disney sidekicks and he creates these endless drawing pads of these sidekicks and his stories. The film is based on a book by his father, Ron Suskind, Pulitzer Prize winning writer. And the last chapter in the book is The Land of the Lost Sidekick. So we animate that. And I went to this animation company in France because Owen only identifies with hand-drawn animation. When they used to hand-draw animation, they would keep a mirror on their desk and they would make facial expressions to draw the facial expressions into the characters. And there's a power of the hand on paper and the, 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 the human connection to these characters. And so I went to this company in Paris and I had 15 French animators hand-drawing every moment of the Land of the Lost Sidekicks, and it was amazing and extraordinary. Yeah, that really is a remarkable part of the film. 
I mean, the animation is amazing. The sound design work was amazing. I know that you worked with Pete Horner at Skywalker Sound uh, and Al Nelson, I believe. Yes, Pete and Al. The way I approached the sound is Owen learned to connect to the world through watching these Disney films on VHS tapes. And he would pause and fast forward and rewind and watch these over and over and over again. And in his world, people living with autism often block out the world and embrace one thing. It's called an affinity. And his affinity is Disney animated films. And so for Owen and many people living with autism, the noise of the world is so overwhelming. And Owen gets, you know, agitated because he's super sensitive to every single sound, everything going on. And so what I wanted to do is get inside Owen's head and create a soundscape. So I found this composer, Dylan Stark, this kid in Portland who hadn't really done a score of a movie. And he used all these sounds of animation, of anime, of tapes fast-forwarding and rewinding, all these sounds in his work. And I thought, he understands Owen's sonic sort of world, the way he hears the world. And we created that. And he used all of those sounds to create this sort of deeply enriching soundscape. We spent a year, I worked with Skywalker and Al Nelson for a year doing the sound design. We started the sound design before we even started shooting. It's as important to me as the picture. And it was an extraordinary process of bringing Owen's internal world to life. There was a ton of Disney clips in this film. So (laughs) obviously you had to get permission from them. Yes. And yeah, or uh, that wasn't fair use, was it? I mean, oh, no, 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 no. no, no. So. Skywalker is actually owned by Disney. So we started working with that footage, like I said, a, a year. Uh, the resolution is unbelievable. They have like a cable system, whatever. What do you call it? Fiber where they optic. Can, fiber optic thing where yeah. they connected right to the Disney server. So we get yeah. these 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 images at such an incredible resolution. But that was, of course, going to be the big challenge. How do you get Disney and and not pay a fortune? It's sort of almost like priceless the amount of clips we had in that film. So I was sitting here in the Catskills and I get a call from Carrie Putnam, who is the CEO of the Sundance Institute. And she's like, I'm sitting here at the TED conference, sitting next to Sean Bailey, the head of Disney Studios. And uh, Sean is on the board of Sundance and I want to put him on and you talk to him to tell him about Life Animated. So I did just that. We took them on a journey you know, the, the, the lights went down and we showed these clips. And by the time the lights came up, they were all in tears. I had the lawyers crying. <laughs> and they said, you have the blessing of Disney. And they said, one of, I remember someone said, one of the lawyers or someone said, but we've never mixed characters. Meaning that Jiminy Cricket never hung out with you. You know, they've never done that. And they've never had allowed other people to draw their characters. So this was unprecedented, but they were so blown away by the stories we left there with their blessing. (laughs) What a great story. What a great story. (laughs) Oh my God, I can only imagine. (laughs) Roger, going into that meeting where basically your whole film relies on this meeting going well. So what did Owen think uh, about the whole film and specifically 
the Land of the Lost Sidekicks. Well, Owen created the Land of the Lost Sidekicks, so it was seeing his story come to life on screen and animation was, you know, overwhelming for him. But we bought his dad, Ron Suskind, and, and Owen to the office at Motto Pictures, and we showed them the film, and we were really nervous. We actually left them alone in the room to watch, and they were hugging and crying, and Owen was, he doesn't like physical contact. And I, I couldn't believe it. I walked into the room after the screening, and he ran over to me and hugged me, which was extraordinary. The, the autism community, they just so embraced the film, and they said, this is what we've been waiting for, is this honest, real, beautiful portrayal of who we are. And it was so amazing to see the response from, the, from that community. It can't help but affect you as a filmmaker to know that you've affected people's lives and, and you hear stories from people throughout the world. You know, my parents finally understand me. Yes, exactly. I mean, how did the aftermath of this film affect you? Oh, it changed my life, really. It, it changed, yeah. just changed my perception of the world and the way I saw the world and opened me up to even more so to wanting to tell those types of stories, to wanting to be the champion of people who the world looked down upon. And that's what I've done since then. You know, that was really when I, right after that, I started my company, One Story Up, which is a production company, very busy production company now. Okay. Um, but, you know, the mission of that company is to give opportunities to BIPOC filmmakers, um, filmmakers who just hadn't, haven't had the opportunities to tell the types, their, their own stories. I think it was Life Animated where I became establishment, a gatekeeper, and I could open doors for people. And that's what I really set out to do. Like I could spend like an hour talking about being from a marginalized community and the barriers that you have. And it's kind of like the opposite of this little quote I gave you before. It's kind of like, if people don't see it, they don't think that it's possible. You know, if you don't have someone who's BIPOC as an executive in your company or as a DP yep. or whatever, you don't think they freaking exist. Yeah. But all of us are all over the place. You know, we have almost 100 employees and they're all... Outsiders. They're all people who, who of, 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 of color and women. And I remember the, that first meeting, we, we sort of, I burst into tears and people started crying because we hadn't seen that all together. We had all been sort of isolated and siloed and struggling in our own. And it's a powerful, powerful thing. And now with all the productions it's really important that those who have lived the experience tell the story. We still have a long way to go, though. Oh, God. We, yes. we truly do. It's oh. just... Yeah. But, but look, companies like yours or the Brown Girls Doc Mafia yeah. and ADOC, which is yes. you know, a group yeah. of Asian yeah. and South Pacific Islanders and such. It's just... Yeah. And we even have one that I, I was one of the founders of for people with disabilities called Forward Doc. 
It is this power of community and being in the same room with other people for the first time. It's so empowering. It's just a matter of being able to have community and not to silo yourself, but support your, your community and engage with the, the world outside of that, but centered in what your identity is. And we know the authenticity of making stories from one's lived experience or culture. It turns out incredible pieces of film or art or television. And, you know, you see that all over the place. You can feel it. You know. You can feel it in the story. You feel this, the, you know, when you're watching a film, the difference between someone who's lived that experience and someone who hasn't, it's... It's, you know, you can't compare that. And and I think the, the industry's just, they're still struggling to understand that, you know, in the buyers, the streamers, because the executives don't reflect the world um, we live in, um, just like you said. And so, you know, that is a, something we have to change. We have to create a pipeline of not just filmmakers, but also the executive side. The people who are commissioning these works, you know, that's some of the work that the Academy's doing with the Aperture 25. So it's, you know, there's a lot of work to be done in definitely in the, in the industry and, you know, also in the world, of course. <laughs> but yeah, let's just start with the industry. <laughs> well, I mean, we've just seen over and over in, in history, where's the box office draw from your community? Thank God for Sydney Poitiers so many years ago. But it's taken time for other marginalized communities. And I think that that's one of the issues in the disability community in that no one should be playing the role of a person with disability who's not disabled. You can point at some extraordinary performances, but yet that stuff has got to stop. Yeah. But it's up to our industry to make sure that we're building the pipeline so people build a fan base. I, I worry that sometimes, especially with our podcast here, I'm getting a little bit too narrow focused, but yet I think that what I'm talking about here is applicable to people who are Native Americans, right? Absolutely. I mean, to any any marginalized, any, any minority, you know, I think, yes. Um, and I mean, there were the, remember the, the old movies where, <laughs> where, you know, white, actors in Hollywood would play Asians. I mean, Hollywood was built on blackface and racism. And the first blockbuster was Birth of a Nation. And film about the racist clan and and the, 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 the threat of black men, you know, and Birth of a Nation, which was embraced by Woodrow Wilson and shown at the White House and became a huge hit. That started the Hollywood blockbuster, really. That was the first big Hollywood film. And um, Hollywood's built on racism, so we have a, a lot of work to reverse all of that for the last hundred years. Yeah, my community, we call it cripping up when someone who's not disabled playing a disabled character. It's crazy. So, the Apollo. Oh, my God. First off, I really love music, okay? And I love entertainment. And the Apollo certainly is known for music, the comedians, and all sorts of other people. So... Like I asked you for Life Animated, this was a huge undertaking, this film. How do you talk about the Apollo? How do you describe it? Well, Apollo is a temple to the resilience of 
black people. And everything that happened on that stage at the Apollo reflected who we are and where we are, were in the world. And, and we used that stage to lift ourselves out of the legacy of slavery to great contribution to the culture. 85 years of history, how do you whittle that down to a 90-minute film? <laughs> I thought that the way to approach this was what was happening in Harlem, what was happening in America, and how it was reflected on that stage. So when Billie Holiday wrote Strange Fruit, what people don't realize, that was banned on most radio stations and couldn't be played in the South. And she couldn't perform that anywhere, but she could go to the stage of the Apollo and it was a safe place for her to express the pain of lynching. I mean, uh, and same thing over and over, you know, in 1968 when James Brown a tumultuous year in America and, you know, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and people were rioting and James Brown wrote the rallying cry, I'm Black and I'm proud, and performed that on the stage of the Apollo because that was home, you know, that was home for James Brown. His funeral was on at the Apollo and his casket light on that stage was when Aretha Franklin performed at the Apollo, they would just put on the marquee, she's home. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, (laughs) you know, uh, uh, that stage is a magical, powerful amplifier of the culture, the pain, the struggle, the comedy, the joy, everything. What was going on in America was being reflected there. So it was about going 90,000 feet and then going back to that stage. And I had to not just make it a, a, a history lesson and had to figure out a way to connect it to the present day. And so when Camilla, Camilla Forbes said, they're going to be mounting ta Coates Between the World and Me, his blockbuster book, his transformative book about the killing of Black men... Um, Black people. I said, this is it. This is the hook. For one year, we followed the process of creating, taking that book and transforming it into a a theatrical stage experience um, that started at the Sundance Theater Lab and watched the brilliant Camila Forbes and developed that until that. And then you have a natural finale, which is that night, which was an incredibly powerful night where that is performed on that stage by incredible actors. And that night was, everyone who was in that audience was like, that was one of the most extraordinarily powerful nights. And you couldn't, you can't go into the Apollo without feeling the presence of all the ghosts of everyone who's performed there on that stage and who's been on that stage. It's, it's, I can't even, I mean, I don't know if you've been there, but I, it's, you, you just can't explain the feeling of being in that, in that building and, walking on that stage. When I, it was the opening night of the Tribeca Film Festival and to watch the film at the Apollo, I 
stood on that stage and I, God, was I emotional because uh, you feel the spirit of little Stevie Wonder and the Jackson Five and everyone who's, who's you know, Ella Fitzgerald. This is the girl who came in and auditioned for Amateur Night and became became one of the greatest living one of the greatest legends of all time and same Diane Washington all these you know people who started at amateur night it also the, the amazing thing about the that stage is and that and the apollo is that it, opportunities you know like we were saying that people didn't normally have it gave you you can just go to amateur night walk in there and perform, and if you were good, that audience would, they would reject you if you were bad, of course, but you would, if you were good, they would embrace you, and you could become a star. You could become Ella Fitzgerald, and all those people, and, and all those people who won Amateur Night and went on to be some of the greatest entertainers of all time. And even those that were booed off the stage. Yes. Lauren Hill. Lauren Hill, right? Lauren Hill was booed off the stage. Dave Chappelle was booed off the stage multiple times. Jamie Foxx, and he's like, you know, I was booed off that stage. You know, it made you stronger. And the, the stage made you. It was also, you know, what Patti LaBelle says, you know, it's like a university because you learned to perform. You'd watch the other performers. When they would, they would do these variety shows where they'd have... You just you go out and you do a couple numbers, and Smokey Robinson would say you'd be terrified, and you know, you but you would it would make you stronger, and you would learn by watching the other acts, um, and it was a competition, a friendly, healthy competition there to um, to be your best, and it made them, it, it prepared them for superstardom and for greatness. Yeah, I, I bring up Lauren Hill because. We do see her kind of her amateur night performance and it's not very good. And then years later, she comes back yeah. and like that woman. Yeah. Yeah. She yeah. like she has it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And she has it like a house on fire. It's because she got booed off that stage that yeah. you know. Especially that's the it, it, to me the story of the puzzle's the story of black resilience. You know, we're resilient people and everything's been thrown at us and we continually come back stronger than ever. And that's what happened on that stage. Do you think that the Apollo is maybe like the most important cultural center for African-Americans in the United States? Absolutely. You know, the Apollo was used to be called the Chitlin Circuit, and the Apollo was the, the mecca, the, the, the end. The, the, when you got to the Apollo, you knew you had, you know, sort of made it on that circuit. But it is definitely the cultural center. Even what they're doing now, you know, ta is an artist in residence, and, and what they're doing now, cultivating new talent, it's a place that nurtures Black talent, and it's always been that, and it continues to do that today. It's definitely the the center of that, the nucleus. <laughs> I just have to kind of like fanboy a little bit here just because so much of this footage that we see, some of it I think you really must have had some really surprising finds because not all of it is perfect resolution. Some of it's a little bit 10th generation or whatever, but that doesn't matter. It's like it's the performance. 
Lisa Cortez was the producer of the Apollo. She literally went through people's basements because the Apollo had been flooded and abandoned. And in the film, you see the sort of, it's gone through a lot. Nothing was saved. It was all, a lot of it was destroyed. We literally tracked down people like Pigmeat Markham's family and would go to their house in the Bronx and she would go through the basement and find old reels and moldy three-quarter inch tapes and we had to transfer that stuff and it was a treasure hunt. You know, just seeing uh, Leslie Uggams and... Yeah. But I think... I basically lost my mind seeing the footage of the Motown Review. Oh, yeah, the Motown Review. All those people. And then, you know, little Stevie Wonder playing fingertips. And it's like, when I was a kid, WABC in New York was a top 40 radio station. We had it on. I mean, you heard fingertips like once an hour, you know. <laughs> and, and we knew that little Stevie Wonder was blind. There was just some connection there. Yeah. You know, when the album Talking Book came out, it had Braille on the LP cover. Really? Yeah, it did. It was raised Braille. Wow. On that. I wish I had saved that album. You should uh, have saved, yes. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, yeah, Well, it seems like, Jim, that you want to make a music doc. <laughs> I, I love mixing music docs. It's, yeah. You know, and I've had a chance to do that in the past, and there's something just really fabulous about that. It, I mean, it, it's so much fun. I'm doing one right now, and I'm doing a, a documentary about Donna Summer. Oh, it's just so the music is so much fun, and um, and I'm doing it with her daughter Brooklyn, and you know, they she's like, we just found the first time Donna's riffing on Bad Girls a tape. It's so raw. It was a total different song. It's raw. It's like almost like gospel because her voice she grew up she was a she grew up in the church as a gospel singer and it was like finding this raw first recording of bad girls is was like and, and there's many discoveries like that but it's so much fun i mean god i can't wait to to mix mix donna summer <laughs> yeah that'll be great i i i was so fortunate but a number of years ago i uh time life put out a series of dvds on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremonies. And my friend Bob Sorrells was the, you know, editor on that. And the audio quality was all over the place. And so to be able to try to resurrect and match different takes or different sources and such was, was a, I learned so freaking much by doing that. Plus there I am in my studio and there's Prince playing while my guitar gently weeps and I could crank it up as loud as I wanted to. It was just, a, you know, there is pleasure in this work that we do that I think then when you bring certain things to, to life or you realize, wow, this needs tender, loving care so that it works within the context of, of my film. But when you achieve that, and it's, I mean, it is craft, but it's aesthetics and understanding. Yeah, yeah. It's like scoring a touchdown. Yeah. So, Roger, here we are. It's uh, mid-April of 2022. What are you working on? Where, where are you going? <laughs> what's, what's making you excited right now? I'm working on three feature films. A one narrative, one documentary, and one hybrid. So I've 
cover, I have the spectrum covered. My scripted film is a screenplay that David Teague, um, the editor of Life Animated, and I wrote together based on a New Yorker article about a cross-dressing Mexican wrestler called Cassandro. And uh, I shot the film in Mexico City in the middle of the pandemic this past summer. We're in post now. Soon the world will see Cassandro, played by Gael Garcia Bernal. So I'm in the middle of post on that. Uh, Donna Summer documentary, which is in post on that. Sort of unexpected film that's very personal, told by mostly by her and her an immediate family. And I'm doing a hybrid film for Netflix based on Ibram X. Kendi book, Stamped from the Beginning, which is the history of racist ideas that takes us from the, the birthplace of racist ideas and the beginning of the European slave trade in 1452 in Portugal to the present day. The way racist ideas were disseminated through art and popular culture told through the art form at the time shot on a green screen stage where I transformed the actors into these sort of artworks. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, yeah, so those three, those are the three. And then I'm also directing the op- the first episode of the 1619 Project with uh, the New York Times and that series. And then we're, you know, and then the company is has my 14 or 15 projects that is going on. So it's a busy time. Uh, <laughs> your your company is called One Story Up. Yes. I can't wait to see them. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I have one final question for you. Yeah. And then um, I'd like to say goodbye, but you're the chair of the Much Picture Academy's Documentary Diversity Committee, correct? Mm-hmm. What does diversity in filmmaking mean to you? And do you have any advice for young people from underrepresented backgrounds who might be interested in becoming documentarians, filmmakers themselves? You know, it's really important that the membership of our doc branch should reflect the world. It hadn't been that way. And so when I was elected as governor of the documentary branch six years ago, I was the second black governor. There had been a push after, you know, Oscar So White and the Academy created the 82020 initiative. I grabbed a hold of that and I ran for governor and won. And I walked in that boardroom, which is a very intimidating room, right? I walked in the room and there's Steven Spielberg, the governor of the director's branch, and Tom Hanks, governor of actors, and all the most powerful people in Hollywood. And I thought, okay, I could be really intimidated or could kick down the doors and create incredible change. And so I set out first to reach gender parity. And we're the first branch of the Academy to go from non-gender parity to gender parity. Because how can the doc branch be mostly white men when women are creating so much work? And really the power behind the documentary industry, women, how can we not reflect that? That's crazy. So everyone has to you know, sponsor women from memberships. And and we reached gender parity, which was a very proud moment. And then 
I read on, I looked and there was like, I don't know, like you can count on one hand the number of Latino members in the in the branch. And I was like, this is crazy. We, I better reach out to to Latin America and and build the that membership. And you can count on two hands the number of Black Americans in the academy. And because of the A2020 initiative, I was able to invite unprecedented amounts of women, BIPOC filmmakers, and also international filmmakers. So now we're the most diverse branch in the academy, and a third of our membership is international in the doc branch. And I'm very proud of the work over the six years. It's my last year I term out this year. Documentaries continue to lead the way. We're doing that in the academy, and we are doing that in the world. The vice, I guess, for young people is, you know, tell your truth. Your stories matter as people. If it's important to you, you have to sort of find your truth. And the pain that you've experienced in your life is the, the sort of fuel for your storytelling. And that's my advice to young people is to take your challenges and your pain and your suffering and turn it into great art. I would add something to that, which is that I think that people don't expect joy to come out of many communities. And so you have to grab what is really burning in your heart and really take that and take that as fuel, but also try to find the joy in your world. Oh, absolutely. When we tell our stories, our stories aren't just about the pain it's about the resilience and the joy. All of this work has been extraordinarily important, and the whole world benefits from it. Yep. You know, and so the more that we bring people in from different cultures, I identify culturally as somebody with a disability, people yep. who are indigenous, undocumented people, immigrants, the richer our lives become. Absolutely. And so it's not just like, oh, we got to do the PC woke thing. That's BS. It is about trying to experience life fully and that in experiencing that, our lives are enriched and so are those people's lives enriched. Here, here. Yeah. (laughs) I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this conversation with you, you. Roger. Thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. I wish you all the success in the world. I can't wait to see your upcoming projects and I hope our paths cross someday. And Yes, yes. Um, well, thank you, Jim. This is really, this is a great conversation and you're uh, an amazing interviewer. So it's a conversation. It was a conversation. <laughs> thank you, Roger. Thanks. This has been the Art of Documentary. Thank you to our host, Jim Labracht. You can watch the films Apollo and Life Animated on most streaming platforms. Stay tuned this season for even more in-depth conversations with amazing documentary filmmakers. Thanks for listening. This series was produced by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences.